Grace Church Online experience. So glad that you guys are with us uh, this summer. We're going to jump right in because we got a lot of ground to cover today. But if we haven't met, my name is Aiden, one of the pastors here at Grace, and so glad that you're tuning in in this way. We are going through the book of First Thessalonians, so you guys can open your Bibles, lay that on your lap. I was thinking about this this week that I was prepping that. It's interesting how just the older you get, you know, no matter where you're at, you're older than you were yesterday, how just things kind of come full circle, right? You know, you kind of were... We're at some point in this pandemic, I don't know if we're in the middle, towards the end, who knows? Um, We'll know someday. But I was thinking about all these different kind of things that happen in culture that are kind of these big deals, right? And I was thinking about um, when I was was about nine or ten years old, the big big deal uh, that was happening uh, was Y2K. If you remember Y2K, that was the year 2000 when the clocks were going from 1999 to 2000. And I don't remember what the details were, but something was supposed to happen. Computers were going to crash, cats and dogs living together. Like, I'm not sure what it was, but computers were going to mess up. And so it was a big deal, and the grid was going to crash, and I I honestly have no idea. But I was like nine, I was ten years old, so I was at that point where I was like, not, I didn't understand what was happening, but I knew that like people were kind of scared about it a little bit, and I was like, wasn't sure, right? And so I remember, you know, this is, uh, I, I kind of end up being the same way. My my mom is kind of the person uh, at the time that was like, well, I'm not going to build a bunker in the basement, but I feel like I should do something. And so I remember being a kid, as we got closer to the new year, in our basement was four gallons of water. <laughs> there was just four gallons of water in the corner. I remember being a kid being like, I hope that the world doesn't crash uh, of the new year, but if it does, I don't know if this is going to be what gets us through these four gallons of water, right? She wasn't going to build a bunker, but you got to do something. So mom got four gallons of water for Y2K. Now, flash 20 years into the future, you know, the pandemic's happening, the beginning of this whole thing, we didn't know it was happening. And I have a wife now, I have a house, I have a, a child, and I'm like, I'm not going to build a bunker in my basement, but I feel like I should do something. Right? Like, I'm not, I'm not the most prepared person in the world. I don't, like, when I get a flat tire, I'm, like, calling a friend. I don't have a spare. I'm that kind of person. But I'm like, I should probably do something. And so I, like a lot of people, you know, we're kind of going to the grocery store. We had that whole deal. I'm, I go to the grocery store, and I grab two frozen pizzas and two cartons of almond milk, because almond milk lasts longer than regular milk. And I came home... And that's what I had for the global shutdown of the grid going off because of the pandemic. Yes, I had two frozen pizzas and a little bit of milk. And so I kind of realized in this whole thing, that thing comes full circle. The older you get, you realize you become like parents, all this kind of stuff. But all this stuff reminded me of whether it's these global things, whether it's these personal things, whether it's things in our nation, that we all, we all experience uncertainty, we experience stress, we experience fear, anticipation, expectation, hope for redemption, longing for things to be okay, right? Whether that's a big global thing, like Y2K or the pandemic, people have walked through wars, uh, there's a global warming types of things, there's natural disasters, these big global things, right? Or sometimes there's things that are more on our national level or local level, you know, there's Politics can feel messy. There's different social instability. There's seems like there could be different broken systems, right? Or sometimes these kind of fears and stresses show up in our own life with failed dreams and grief and uncertainty and loss and disappointment. And that there's all these different things that we feel from big scales to small scales. In the word that we often use to describe the silver lining in the midst of all these things, 
to describe the possibility of maybe a, pos- a positive outcome, maybe a word to describe our optimism in these situations, the silver lining is hope, right? That's the word that we use. You know, Star Wars has Star Wars A New Hope. President Obama in 2008 ran on the platform of hope. Uh, in, in 2016, there was a headline that said, Cavs Championship Parade provides justification for Cleveland fans' refusal to abandon hope, right? I, I mean, they're doing fine now, I guess, but being a kid growing up, I didn't pay attention to uh, the Browns, but like, our, we love the Browns. And the older I got, I realized how horrible the Browns were, and we held out for hope, right? But as followers of Jesus, if you're listening, you're a follower of Jesus, we are people of hope, but it's very different. I want to read you guys a quote that we're going to kind of spring off of today. A guy named Glenn Packiam says this, Christian hope is not optimism. It's not positivity or an upbeat mood. Christian hope is not escapism. It's not the view that the world will get darker, but God will get us out of here. Christian hope is not progress. It doesn't emerge from potential or possibility. Christian hope is uniquely shaped by the resurrection, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of our own future resurrection. Let's pray before we jump into this today. God, as we jump into this passage, I pray that you'd meet us where we're at, that you'd give us perspective, that as we look forward to your coming, as we work while we wait, that it would give us hope, that it would give us perspective, that it wouldn't just be some amorphous thing that we forget about but it would change the way that we live here and now and that our hope would be rooted in you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, as we said, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. You guys have your Bibles in front of you. You can pause, open that up. And we are continuing through. uh, I wouldn't dance to this last week, that this 1 Thessalonians, you can think of it as a letter, not a book. It's a letter that Paul writes to people that he loves. He came and planted a church, taught these people about Jesus. He got ran out of town. And the book of 1 Thessalonians is him writing back to them on how to work in the waiting, giving them instructions on how to live while they wait for the return of Jesus. And now today and next week is probably the theme passage when people think about this book is these next couple of sections. So let's read through this today. You got your Bibles. Let's open up to that. We'll throw it up on the screen right here. We're in chapter four, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We're just going to read five verses, 13 through 18. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. Now he's writing to the Thessalonians. He was with them. He's gone from them now, right? And what people kind of believe is that some people have died amidst them, and they're not sure what happened. And how do we know that? Well, Paul says we don't want you to be uninformed because they're, they're probably uninformed, right? They're probably some questions in their understanding, right? And when he says those who have fallen asleep, it's not those who, you know, took some melatonin and a nap. Like that is an analogy for those that have died, Right? But he says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who doesn't have hope. Look what he says in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring to Jesus those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in him. And then verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who who have fallen asleep. Now this passage we're going to look at, the next couple verses, this is what is traditionally believed to be the rapture, right? This is a picture of Jesus coming back. And so Paul is, as he writes then, he's not giving them a timeline. He's not like, hey, I want to tell you about how all the end time charts work. 
but he's writing them, giving them hope because they're not sure about what happens to those that they love that have died in Christ. And so he's writing this to explain this to them. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. John Piper says this is the loudest verse in all the Bible. 17, after that, those who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The first thing we want to look at today as we walk through this is this, that hope is downstream from what we believe. That hope is downstream from what we believe. Paul, Paul says, I don't want you to grieve as those without hope. But then in verse 14, he jumps and says, for we believe. We'll throw this up here on the screen. Look what he says. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Now, if we're honest, the word belief can be pretty anemic in our culture. Like we, we use that to be like, do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe in Bigfoot, aliens? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that there's love at first sight, right? So we usually think that belief means something that we just think is real. It's kind of how we think about belief. But this word, this Greek word is pisteo. It's to be persuaded of, to place our confidence in, to entrust ourselves to something. We center our lives on what we believe is true, right? We see this We see this probably most clearly in our day with politics, right? Like we believe that there's a certain political persuasion, and so we kind of center our lives in that. Maybe it's a worldview. Maybe it's the framework for what is true or right. But what we believe is what we center our lives on. Belief isn't just acknowledging reality. Yeah, that's real. But it's stepping out in faith into that reality. For we believe, what does he say we believe? That Jesus died and rose again. This whole idea of hope that Paul spells out for them. As he talks about, as he talks about the rapture, he talks about the end times, he talks about the coming back of Jesus. It's all centered on this belief that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The Thessalonians, they had questions. They had gaps in their understanding about death and Jesus' return and hope. And Paul ties their grief and their hope directly to the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, it was not just a cool miracle. It's not just like, wow, Jesus is a big deal. Did you see how he came back from the grave? But it was the first sign of the new creation, the things that were to come. We talked about this back at Easter. Dan gave this analogy, which I love, that when, when it's winter, we get into March, and it's still winter, there's still snow on the ground, but we know spring is coming. There's these yellow crocus flowers that begin to shoot up all over the place, right? Spring is not here yet, but those flowers point to the fact that spring is coming. They're the first signs of this new creation where the leaves and the grass and the flowers and everything comes back to life. But those flowers in the midst of winter are the first signs of that. Jesus' resurrection was the first sign of new creation. That, that all things are going to be made new. That he was ushering in a new reality as king. Guys, I, w- I want to say this, and I think it's important for us. That the belief in a physical, bodily resurrection of the man Jesus Christ it is not optional for the follower of Jesus. If you're watching and you're like, I love the love thing Jesus talks about. I think church is good. I think we need to be good people. I think Jesus taught a lot of good things and we should do that. But I don't, I don't think he rose from the dead. 
Then I would like very gently, very gently say, I don't, I'm not sure you're a Christian. We don't believe that kind of metaphorically, you know, Jesus kind of rose from the dead because we want to conquer evil with good. And so it's kind of more of this meta, it was not, it was not a metaphor. How, why, why, but Aiden, that feels a little explicit. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19. This is what the apostle Paul says. Same guy who wrote 1 Thessalonians says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. He's like, we are liars about God. For we testified that God has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise Jesus from the dead if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. He's tying the resurrection of Jesus with the future hope of the resurrection. The question that the Thessalonians are asking. Jesus was raised. Are we going to be raised again to new life, right? Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That's who the Thessalonians were questioning. What happens to those that have, are in Jesus that have died, right? Paul's saying, if there's no resurrection, those people are just gone. That's just it. They're just in the ground. Paul, look at 19. If only for this life we have, we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. If, if our only hope in Jesus is that he gives us a nice life and teaches us how to be nice people, Paul's like, forget this. We should be pitied if Jesus is just a life coach. Look what he says down. We skip down to verse 32. Paul says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for no more than human hopes, no more than just nice things that happen here, he says, what have I gained? For if the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is hardcore about the resurrection and its implication that if Jesus is not raised, then we aren't going to be raised again, and this is all silly. Just go watch Oprah and do your best, because we're all going to die. That's what Paul's saying. He says, go eat and drink, right? But our hope, the hope for that he's encouraging the Thessalonians with, flows from the beauty and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe? that the man Jesus Christ rose from the dead to offer you new life, to offer you forgiveness, to offer you a way to be part of his family, have a relationship with God, and to be the first being of the new creation that we all hope and long for. You may, if we're honest, you may, you may love this stuff of Christianity, but yet it was for, we struggle to believe that. You're like, dude, I don't, a man came back from the dead. You expect me to believe that? I Maybe you want to, but you're like, I just can't. In Mark 9, 23, there's a story where there's a man whose son is possessed by an impure spirit. And he wants Jesus to heal him, but he has his questions. He has his doubts. And what he says is to Jesus, he says, I do believe. I do pisteo. I do, I do entrust you. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome the parts of me that have questions. Help me overcome the parts of me that haven't entrusted myself to the reality of who you are. If that's you, you're like, I just can't believe it. I'd encourage you. Cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help my unbelief, right? But for some of us, we're like, oh yeah, I've believed that my whole life. I have no problem believing in the resurrection, literally. But what you may struggle with is believing the resurrection functionally that it actually does give us hope. We acknowledge it, but we don't believe that we live in this earth like, like, like it's the best hope that there is. We live here on planet earth. Like I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but this place is where I got to put my stock because this is where I'm at, right? 
And so we look at our retirement, we look at our vacations, we look at our time away as like the ultimate rest for our souls, right? Like, oh, if I could just, right? That also, we look at like relationships, like we're always in a relationship because that's what's going to satisfy my soul, give me meaning. Sometimes it's little things, it's food, it's entertainment, it's material things, that even if it's small things that we kind of just cater our souls with it and we're like, but that gives me kind of this, this ongoing hope, right? That there's so many earthly things that we put our hope into. Sometimes we, we see this so much now that it's, it's a belief system, it's, it's politics, that that is what is going to redeem our culture and nation. And we may believe Jesus rose from the dead as king, but functionally, we believe that the things in this earth are going to be what help us sleep at night and give us a real sense of hope. How do we know if that's true or not? When those things are taken away, how worked up are you? How emotionally distraught are you when that vacation, when that material thing, when that relationship, when that political person does not show up? It's going to reveal where our hope is actually rooted. Our belief in the reality that Jesus died and rose again points to the hope of our own future resurrection where we will rise to be with Jesus. We'll keep going. Our belief points to our hope and our hope is his forever presence. Our hope is his forever presence. Our hope is downstream from what we believe. Look at verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, loud command of the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what Paul's talking about, this resurrection. After that, we who are still alive and left, to be, left will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And look at this. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. I want to look at this first part. We will be with the Lord. We will be with the Lord. If our hope is his forever presence. You know, we, we, we've all kind of been around America for a minute, possibly, right? And there's a lot of caricatures. There's a lot of weird culture adaptations. There's kind of misunderstandings of what the Christian belief of eternity is, right? And some of it's good intentioned, right? There's a, a show on NBC called The Good Place, right? Like heaven is like, it's the good place where we end up. Or we, we used to do a, a thing here called Judgment House. Uh, it was great. And in there is kind of this way to depict uh, heaven. We kind of had white sheets everywhere. It was this very pleasant place. And sometimes when I think of heaven, I think of my friend Tyler Jensen as a little kid who was in the scene and he was playing Yahtzee, right? Like in our, in our good efforts, good intention to create what this, this pleasant place may be like, I think of Tyler Jensen playing Yahtzee, right? I'm like, is that what heaven is? Is me playing Yahtzee with Tyler forever, right? For sometimes we think of cartoons with kind of cartoonish clouds and gates and St. Peter's there with a checklist. Like we have these different pictures in our head, right? But almost every belief has some idea of the afterlife. Almost every belief, right? For Hinduism, it's reincarnation. For Judaism, it's the world to come. For Islam, it's paradise. And I'm not an expert on the afterlifes of other world religions, but I have grown up in America my whole life. And we've got kind of a strange, boiled-down understanding that's kind of influenced by Christianity. But it kind of has this idea that if we're a good person, then we'll end up in the good place. The good person is very subjective, and the good place is basically a creation of whatever we want it to be, right? And oftentimes, this, this idea of heaven, this happens for us as Christians, this idea of heaven has little to nothing to do with Jesus, Unless simply praying a prayer is the passcode to get there, then I'll do that prayer just to get to the nice place. But for the follower of Jesus, I, I'm not going to sit here and deconstruct America's idea of what 
eternity is. If you're a follower of Jesus, biblically, our hope, is that heaven is not simply a better place. They're in a better place. And maybe Jesus happens to be there. Like, oh, look, there's Jesus and some other nice people. Hi. Like, that is not what heaven is. Heaven is the place where the presence of Jesus is. Like, Jesus doesn't happen to be in heaven because it's nice. No, no, that's not what it is. Heaven is where Jesus is. Let me give you an example. My, my wife and I, we've been living uh, right up the street from here at the church for about five years uh, in our house. It's, we love it. It's great. It's, it's this hundred and over 120-year-old uh, farmhouse. It's got its fun quirks. We love it, right? We've made it our own for the last couple of years. We've painted it, and we've kind of remodeled some things here and there. Not very great uh, because my skills aren't great. But we planted flowers and all these. It's our home. We love this place, right? It was our first home. We, we had our children there. We've walked through some very hard seasons of grief in that home. Like just in our last five years, we love this home. It's our, we love it. We, we hope to be there forever. But I'm going to tell you this. For as much as we love to be there, for as much memories as just these last couple of years we've had in there, as much as it means to us, if Sarah's not there, that place ain't home. My wife is not there with me. This is just a house that's decorated the way that we like it. It's not my home. If your understanding of heaven has little to nothing to do with Jesus, it's not heaven. Because heaven isn't just a place that Jesus happens to be. Heaven is where Jesus is. If Jesus ain't there, it ain't heaven. And if that doesn't sound acceptable or exciting to you, you may have a misunderstanding of the power and the beauty and the splendor of who Jesus is. But if we are honest, sometimes the idea of heaven and what kind of happens next can, for some of us, we like get really, really into it. And for some of us, it feels a little abstract, a little confusing. The Bible has a lot of different metaphor and language all throughout it that points to these different things. And so sometimes we either get real into it or we're just like, just, just text me when the end's here. And I just want to make sure I'm on the right line, right? We can fall into those different camps. And I just, for the sake of today, want to just give us a 30,000-foot view of, of what Jesus is pointing us to, what this hope is pointing to, what Paul is starting to talk about in just these two verses. This is just a sample of a lot of what we look at when we think of the end times, right? Because what Paul's desire for the Thessalonians is that their, their understanding of the waiting would impact their working. They want the same thing for us too, right? Sometimes it's going to be mysterious, scary, weird, but it's meant to give us hope and perspective is what Paul's saying here. We don't want to get lost in the weeds because oftentimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds. You know, within Christianity, there's different timelines or different understandings of the order of how things happen sometimes and the details of that. And almost all of that is biblical, right? There's a lot of people who hold very biblical views that kind of come from different places, right? But the four big things that everybody agrees on is the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection, judgment, and new creation. The first thing, and what this passage is kind of pointing to the most, is this, this second coming, that Jesus is coming back. Right when Jesus dies, when he was resurrected, he talks to his disciples. He says, go and make disciples. And then he ascends to heaven. We talked about this a couple months ago. It's the ascension, right? And the disciples are staring at the sky and an angel appears and says, why do you look at the sky? He's going to come back the same way that he went, that Jesus is going to come back. This is where the rapture fits into this whole thing. The rapture theology kind of points to this kind of second coming in two parts, right? That Jesus will come for his church, bring them back with him while there's tribulation. Different People have different views on when the rapture is in, in conjunction with the tribulation and all that. 
But the second coming of Jesus kind of happens in two parts. Nevertheless, Jesus is coming back. We're going to look at this a little bit more even next week. And what we see here, what we see in Matthew 24, is that it's sudden, right? We don't know the day or the hour of when Jesus is returning. So that's why he calls us to be sober and to work as we're waiting, right? Because we don't know when this is going to be. But we know that Jesus is coming back. To jump back into my analogy with Sarah in the house, if I'm in my house and it's our home and all this stuff and Sarah's leaving, I'm going to live differently if I know that she's coming back. If she's like, I got to go out of town, I got to go take care of some things, I'll be back. I'm going to live different. Then she's like, this is the end, goodbye, and she's never coming back. The fact that Jesus is coming back, that there's a second coming, changes the way that we live here. The second thing is resurrection. This is what we talked about. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 is resurrection, right? And this is everyone. This is everyone will be resurrected. Dead, good, bad, all their ages. There's this resurrection, right? John 5, 28 to 29, Jesus talks about this. He says, don't be amazed at this for his time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. <coughs> those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. There's a sobering reality there, but there's this resurrection element that we all agree on when we look at the end times, right? And then it points us to judgment, which we don't like that language when it comes from Jesus, but we're fine when it has to do with our own judgment of other people and other situations, right? But Jesus is the king. Jesus is the creator. He is above all. He is Lord. And the Bible is clear that there will be a judgment, right? That the living, the dead, the righteous, the unrighteous, we will all stand before Jesus. Revelation 20, 12 says, all are judged according to what they have done. Here's the beauty of the gospel. That's an unsettling statement. I don't know about you, but we're judged according to what we've done is unsettling. If I'm going to stand before the creator, the Lord of all, and be judged according to what I've done, I'm, I'm shaking in my, in my khakis, right? But the beauty of the gospel, the Christian, the Christian holds on to the hope that Jesus has taken our record, he's taken what we've done, and he's nailed it to the cross. And he has given us his record 2,000 years ago at that cross when we put our faith in that event, when we put the faith in the resurrection of Jesus, that he has nailed our our sinful record buried in the ground and rose again to new life. Now he gives us his righteousness, his record, that on judgment day for the Christian, we stand before Jesus and we are judged according to what we've done, but what we've done is the record of Jesus. Scott Saul says, because of Christ, our judgment day has moved from the future to the past. We will still stand before Jesus, but our record will be the record of Christ. You're like, that seems ridiculous. Yeah, the gospel is ridiculous. It's a beautiful, crazy story of a God who substituted our sin for his goodness, right? We don't like the talk of judgment. It feels unsettling, but sometimes we just stop there. We have these characters in our head and we stop there at judgment, right? But the end of the story is this recreation that Jesus is judging because the Bible is pointing to this new heavens, new earth, new city where Jesus is going to make all things new. And while we think we're not that bad, Jesus takes sin a lot more seriously. We see this in the gospel. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount, that he takes it a lot more seriously than we do. 
because his judgment is because he's building this new city, this new creation, and he's not going to let evil into the city. He's not going to even let an ounce of sin into this new reality, into this new creation. It's going to be outside the city. But the beauty of this story is this recreation, this restoration, that this all things will be made new. We all have this longing in our heart, and we try to make it happen here on earth. But we're called to be agents of the kingdom that point towards this new heavens, new earth. I want you to read this with me. Revelation 22. We'll throw it up here on the TV. This is the last chapter of your Bible. The Bible starts with creation in the Garden of Eden where God walks with man and woman. And they have relationship in this garden together. And this is how the Bible ends. Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Do you have an idea of who the water of life is? As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, that's Jesus, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side, the river stood the trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, right? And the leaves of the tree are the healing for the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This picture of all things made new is where this story sums up forever and ever. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, and we will be with the Lord forever. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time and has also set eternity in the human heart. We all, whether, whatever background we have, we all long for this eternal peace, right? That's why we try and find things in this world to satisfy that longing, to get a hold of that longing, whether it's money, whether it's position, whether it's, whether it's material things, whether it's experiences, whether it's relationships, whatever it is, we have this desire for this eternal peace and we want to satisfy it with so many things. And we get those snapshots in life, right? We all have those moments, little snapshots, where it's like, I I feel what eternity feels like, but it fades away, right? And no matter what we do, we can't recreate those moments through vacations or drugs or emotions or relationships that never last. And we are always starkly reminded that we live in a messed up, broken world, right? I had a conversation with a friend a couple years ago, and he said, do you think that science is going to eliminate our need for God? <laughs> I was like, well, no, but tell me what you're talking about, right? And he's like, and he got, I don't know, I don't read science journals, but he was talking about how you can clone and develop these different body parts and you can back up our memories and couldn't you in theory clone, clone yourself and back up your memories and exist forever? And I'm like, I don't know about all that, bro. But if you're talking about existing on this planet forever, and just being alive forever, that sounds a lot more like hell than heaven, right? As we get older, as you, and you, may, you know this, you experience the pain of life, you see the brokenness of the world, you experience loss yourself, you see the failure of human systems and this longing for heaven. And Jesus to be king gets more and more real, doesn't it? And the promise is that we will be with Jesus forever, but not in just some existing forever, but new heavens, new earth, where the river of life flows to the city and we have communion with God for eternity.
It's the hope that we're pointed towards, right? So we talk about all these, these like huge, like these are these huge ideas. Our, our response, the way he calls them to work in the waiting, our response is downstream from our hope. And it's proof of what we believe. Look at this. We'll throw this, this picture up here on the screen. That our, our response, it's downstream from our hope. That our hope points to the way we live, but it's also evidence of what we believe. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, hope is a continual looking forward to the eternal world. Not as some modern people think as a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. That's why our prayer is that the, God, your kingdom would come. That the way that we live now would be influenced by, by your kingdom coming, by the what our promises are, by what our hope is in it, that would influence the way that we live now. What are the two things we see in this passage? 418 says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This whole, this whole picture Paul has given them, it's not so they can write timelines, it's not so they can have debates online about how things are going to happen when. But his goal in writing these couple verses is to give hope that they might encourage one another. We are called to be people of encouragement because we know where this thing's going, right? We have hope of resurrection. We can give encouragement because the hope of the gospel gives us perspective to see past the immediacy of the situation, right? There's a lot of things to be worked up and upset about. There's all kinds of things that we'd be called for the sake of redemption, called to be a part of in our world, to shine the light bright on Jesus, to be light in the darkness, right? But we approach that different. We don't approach that with doom and gloom and I can't believe the world's coming to this, right? Uh, in, in college, I worked a, a job at this library at Akron. It was, a, it was a secondary job and it was fine. It was kind of in the middle of my schedule. I didn't love it. It was kind of busy. And as I was doing it, and there was so many things going on. I was trying to get through graduation. I had another almost full-time job I was doing. I was looking forward to starting my job at the church and all these different things. But I had this big plan that summer to propose to Sarah. And so that job I was working, you know, for some of the people I was working with, it was just kind of this ho-hum thing. But for me, that job was specifically, that was the ring job. That was the money I was putting aside for her ring. I was doing that job for her ring. And the immediacy, the moment of the job, I didn't love all the different things. It was kind of uh, stuck in the middle of my schedule. But I had a different perspective with it because this job was, was going to give me this ring that was going to give me this woman. She said yes right? But it helped me look past the immediacy of the situation. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, is what everybody hears from you, doom and gloom in the world, and I can't believe, and you see how this political leader, or this situation, or this thing, or this, is that what people hear from us? Do we sound just as downtrodden, just as upset as everybody else? Do we contribute to conversations that are essentially hopeless, or at best, rooted in the hope of some person or some outcome here. We're called to be people to give encouragement because of this reality, because of the, resurre the resurrection, because of the coming of Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We're called to give an account for the hope that we have. 
And it's not in worldly things. It's in the resurrection, the return, the promises of Jesus. The second way that we see that our response is influenced by our hope and points to our belief is verse 13. We don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Let's write it down this way, that we grieve with hope. We grieve. I think sometimes we can kind of try and push, well, you know, we're going to be with Jesus, so don't worry about it. No, we grieve. We grieve for the state of the world. We grieve for losses in our own lives. We grieve, but we don't do it without hope because this isn't all that there is. In my job, um, I, I've had the privilege to get to do quite a bit of funerals. And I'm, I always feel very honored when someone asks me to do a funeral. I, I feel like that's one of the highest things I get to do in my job is to be with people during their loss, during their suffering, and be a, be a presence in the midst of that. I, I actually love that, strangely enough. But one of the, the hard, hard things but unique things that with my job I've gotten to do over the last couple of years is not just attend funerals for people that I love, for people that I'm dearly connected to, but I get to kind of perform their funerals I get to, to speak at the funeral, to, to kind of perform these. The, this, just this, this past winter during COVID, I had the, the wonderful opportunity to get to, to get to bury my grandmother, right? She's a follower of Jesus, right? She, she sat in this room. She's kind of my undercover person. You know, not everybody knew she was my grandma, so she'd give me the inside scoop, right? But I had this beautiful privilege to get to do the, the funeral service for my grandmother, right? But we didn't grieve as, as that was just the end, but we agreed with hope, right? Had the, the privilege to, to do a, a funeral service for a very close friend of mine. We, we grew up in high school, middle, through middle school, high school together. Worshipped in the youth group together. She was a dear friend. She sat right up in the third row at church every week. Her name was Michelle. She had a, she had a very, a very uh, intense, lifelong uh, disease that eventually took her life. And she, in her 30 short years, had probably walked through more suffering than most of us will in two lifetimes. This disease that she had took her ability to walk. It took her vision from her, all these different things. We walked through the situation. We grieved, not just when she passed. We grieved all along because the reality of this world took things from her. But she held on to Jesus. She held on to the hope in the midst of all the honesty. There's a lot of honesty and all these different things. She held on to Jesus and we grieved at her funeral. I had the opportunity to speak at her funeral as one of her pastors, as one of her friends. But we grieved with hope that Michelle's me made new. That we're going to see Michelle again, not in some like nice, abstract, cloudy way, but in a very real way that's rooted in Jesus' resurrection that we grieved with hope. Not too long ago, some of you know uh, our family story. We, we found out that my, we, my wife was pregnant. We told our, our families on Mother's Day, and not a week or two later, we found out that my, my wife's mother was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And so we walked through this for 16 months, right? We walked through that, and as, as a pastor does funerals, I had the beautiful opportunity to do the funeral for my mother-in-law. And we, we grieve, we grieve that still, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Not in some disembodied, nice idea, not in some America better place, in a, in a hope that's rooted in Jesus' resurrection and the hope that they'll be raised to life when Jesus comes again. 
That is our hope. And it changes the way that we live here. That our belief, that our hope, our response, it all revolves around the person and the work and the presence of Jesus. All these things revolve around the presence of Jesus. That we believe, we believe that in this life that we will have the presence of Jesus through our suffering, through our grief, through our questions. That our hope is that Jesus will come and get us and that we will be with him forever. And while we're here on the earth, while we're here tolling on earth, that our response to what we look forward to is that we want to pursue the presence of Jesus now because for eternity we're going to be in the presence of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about being with Jesus. It's all about Jesus' call on our life here and now. If our view and hope has nothing to do with Jesus, then Paul would say we're most to be pitied. But because Jesus is alive, because the promises of Jesus are true, that we grieve with hope and we encourage one another because of that. Have you said yes to Jesus? He's not a passcode to some nice afterlife. He's not just some idea to help us get through life. But he's God in the flesh who has come to take our place, to take our sins, that we might stand before Jesus the judge with a clear slate because what he has done for us, he offers us life and life eternal where we will dwell in the new creation with God as our light forever. Have you said yes to Jesus? And if you have, if you have said yes to Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, has Jesus become just a theory or a math equation or a passcode or a concept or an idea? Or is he your Lord that you follow here on this earth, that you respond to the hope of eternity by following Jesus here and now, by entrusting ourselves to him, by putting all our eggs in the basket of Jesus, that if this thing ain't real, then we are to be pitied. Do you put that confidence in the person, in the work, in the goodness of Jesus? Let's pray together. Jesus, we're thankful for the hope that we have in you. It's not abstract. It's not just some fluffy cloud. It's not just some nice, different situation. But Jesus, our hope is that we will be with you forever, resurrected, new heavens, new earth, Garden of Eden, recreated, where all of the deepest longings of our soul are satisfied in you. And Jesus, you offer us your presence in the midst of this broken world right now. And Jesus, I pray that we may slow down and sit at your feet, be filled with your goodness, be filled with your promises, be filled with who you are. And that Jesus, as we believe you, as we sit at your feet, that that may drive a hope to be with you in reality forever. And that might change the way that we live now. And so Jesus, we are people that grieve, but we grieve with hope. And so Jesus, I pray that you give us perspective. I pray that you would help us as we seek to follow you on this, this slice of earth in the time period that you've given us. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.